Good morning to you. I don't know if you've ever been to Disney during a sweltering summer day, standing in line so you can try not to hurl while you twirl on a teacup. But after a while, hunger will set in, unless you be forced to eat a $12 turkey leg uh, or subsist on Mickey Mouse-shaped funnel cake you might want to find the falafel place and have a real lunch at the park. And so you head over to that, that giant park map that says, you are here. And you discover that you're in the Magic Kingdom and you need to be over at Epcot because that's where the Moroccan pavilion is where the wonderful falafels live. Now, sometimes when you go to the you are here, that marker is comforting. It confirms that we're on the right track, and the desired destination is just a little bit further along our way. But sometimes the you are here marker is jarring, and it tells us that we're way off course, and the journey is going to be more cumbersome than we had previously assumed. And so today we're on the back half of Nehemiah 8, and the Israelites are going to find that in at least three ways they are here. And God wants them over there. Three different ways in our text today. And so with that in mind, please turn in the Word of God to Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8 is on page 510 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. So if you turn to page 510, you'll find Nehemiah 8. As we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's first turn to the Lord of that Word in prayer. Lord Jesus, we invite you today to take your Word and help your people to walk in your will. Ask, Lord Jesus, that you would help us today uh, to do these things uh, wisely, Lord, that we would evaluate where are we standing in relation to your perfect will today. Uh, I pray that this would be clear to us and we would make whatever course adjustments would draw us closer to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Word of God says in Nehemiah 8, starting at verse 9, Nehemiah 8, 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send the portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses and all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild wood, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it's written. So the people went out, and they brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in the courts 
and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who returned from captivity made booths. And they lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. Remember that phrase, because we're going to have to explore that a little more later. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So the focus of our sermon today is on verses 9 through 18, but I need to set the scene. If you weren't with us, then you would have seen the first eight verses last week. In the Bible's timeline, in the telling of this story, God's people had already called for God's man to read God's Word. That's what we saw in the beginning in Nehemiah 8. There were men, women, and children, and they stood for over six hours as the Pentateuch was preached. Now, God's people had constructed a a large wooden platform and, and 13 different preachers expounded and explained the Word of God over those six hours. And there were within the crowds a number of of teachers well-versed in Scripture uh, were interspersed so they could give group discussion and clarification when the people were confused. Now, what happened as a result of this? Well, being under the Word of God together was not meant to be a ritual uh, so that uh, it could be informational. It was meant to be something spiritual that would lead to something transformational. God's Spirit used God's Word to recalibrate God's people in this passage. And so we'll ask a question. What happens when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and washes over the people of God? And what you see in the Bible and what you see in church history, when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and washes over the people of God, the answer is we are revived. We are renewed. And very often we're rebuked unto repentance. And this is just what we see in our text today. After six hours of Spirit-led Scripture saturation, I want you to look at verse 9 again. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and weep. For all the people wept as they heard the word of the law. As they heard the Scripture it began to make them realize how far they were from God's ideal, and they began to automatically start to weep and repent. But that wasn't what God had appointed the festival of booths for. And then He said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing at the ready, for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites, they calmed the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy and do not be grieved. So, so let's stop for just a second. So the Scripture, is the Scripture saying that, that holiness and mourning are mutually exclusive? Well, no, that's not true. Turn for a moment to Leviticus 23, 26. It's on page 129. Leviticus 23, 26, on page 129, leaving your thumb in Nehemiah. Speaking of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus, which is the solemn commemoration of God's passing over sin, 
Scripture calls for a type of affliction in that situation. Leviticus says in verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses, Now on the tenth day of this the seventh month is the day of atonement. And it shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall what? Afflict yourselves. So the festival of booths is for re- rejoicing, but, but the, 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 the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, is different. It was a time to afflict yourselves and present an offering of food to the Lord. On the day of atonement, at that moment, they were to fast, not to feast. In Isaiah 6, when the prophet is caught up to the very throne of heaven, and the majestic holiness of God causes the prophet to see his own sinfulness in bold relief, It led to an outburst of of contrition and confession among Isaiah and on behalf of the people. The Scriptures say in Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord standing upon a throne. High, excuse me, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple, and above Him stood seraphim, and each had six wings, and with two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one seraphim called to the other, and what did they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts who fills the whole earth with His glory. And the foundations and the thresholds shook as the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah the prophet, woe is me, for I am lost. Uh, For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so the answer to our question is no. It is not that holiness and mourning are never conjoined in Scripture. Sometimes, like in Isaiah 6, holiness and mourning are sort of a spontaneous, involuntary reaction to the Lord's glory. Sometimes, holiness and mourning are a mandated, overtly mandated command of God. The Day of Atonement, they were commanded to be afflicted as they thought about God's payment for sin. And yet, this wasn't the case in our text today at the Feast of Booths. Not at this feast. God had specifically declared in Deuteronomy 12.12 and again in Deuteronomy 16.11 that this feast was a feast of rejoicing, not a feast of mourning. Which brings us to our first point today. And it is this. Emotionally, our feelings are fleeting, but God's commands withstand. Emotionally, our feelings are fleeting, but God's commands withstand. If we're honest, many times we let our feelings govern us, don't we? But we ought to let God govern us, shouldn't we? In calling Jesus Lord, we are explicitly inviting Jesus to govern our actions. And yet, too often, we allow our emotions to govern our reactions. Right? We don't think about this a lot, but it's very true. Somehow, we allow anger and depression and discouragement and resentment and bitterness to functionally dethrone Jesus' lordship over us in that moment, don't we? If we were honest. Sometimes, we allow our peace to be replaced with fear. Sometimes we allow our hope to erode into hopelessness. 
Sometimes we allow our joy in Jesus to be doused by sadness stemming from our circumstances. And so it was in Nehemiah 8 today. The people's hearts were cut to the quick after seeing in the Word of God how far they were from the will of God. And so hearing the truth, they were reminded of how far they were from living that truth. And yet God had commanded celebration, not degradation, on this particular feast. God had declared it was a day of rejoicing, not a day of mourning. And so, friends, our emotions are fleeting, but God's commands withstand. It's surprising to me in Scripture that God commands certain emotions as part of our devotion. Does that surprise you? It surprises me. Like, I understand when He says don't do this and do that, and it's, you know, witnessing and praying and actions, but it's surprising to me that God commands certain emotions as part of our devotion. Because our culture tends to think that emotions are automatic, autonomic. It's like blinking. It just happens. We tend to think that our emotions are essentially involuntary. That they're unavoidable reactions. And yet, God's Word says, I want to be Lord of those reactions and those emotions. Hmm. Almost 3,000 years before the birds told us to everything, there is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time for every purpose under heaven, that earworm will be with you the rest of the day. No charge. Before the birds, it was Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, who said those words, and they were said in Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. So how do we discern those times? And the answer is, it is for God to be the Lord of our actions, our reactions, and our emotions. So how are we doing in letting Him be Lord over those things? There are times when God calls us to break away uh, from frivolity and to mourn over our sin. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Scripture attests if we confess our sin to God, God will forgive us and cleanse us. James 4 commands, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. But Scripture also warns that not all mourning is spiritually productive. So it isn't just always be dour and sour because we're at the holy hour. Do you follow? God isn't making pickles. And I've been in churches where you'd think He was. Scripture warns that not all mourning is spiritually productive. 2 Corinthians 7.10 Write that on the margin of your Bible next to Nehemiah 8. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance. And that leads to salvation. And leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See, there's a worldly sorrow. It's not helpful at all. In fact, it can be a train wreck to your spiritual life. And for some of you here today, 
Satan is trying to drown you in despair. He is enticing you to wallow in worldly sorrow until you are utterly miserable and fear tomorrow. For others of you here today, Satan wants to replace your faith with fear. He wants you to be anxious about something so you no longer have the peace of Christ in everything. Friends, the Bible is clear. Satan comes to rob, to steal, kill, and destroy. Now we know he can do that physically. We know he can do that spiritually. But so too it is true that Satan can do this emotionally. If we let him. Satan wants to rob you of your joy. He wants to steal away your peace. And he endeavors to destroy your hope. If you are here today, and, and if you were honest, no matter what your neighbor knows, because you put on your nice suit and you said hello, but in your heart of hearts, if you're here today and you are emotionally entombed, you're depressed, oppressed, and utterly lacking in God's best, your spirit may well need to be reminded the words prompted by God's spirit in Philippians 4.4. Philippians 4.4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Now, the rejoicing Paul was commanding was not as a result of his circumstances, friends. You've read Philippians. It was in spite of his circumstances he was calling us to joy. Paul wrote those words from where? From a prison cell. And while he was rotting away in the jail of his day, self-seeking preachers were peddling Christ out of selfish ambition. But Paul rejoiced that at least the gospel was being preached even if the messenger and his motives were less than ideal. For some of us here today, our circumstances are causing us to dismay. But the Spirit is calling us to faith. Philippians 4 goes on to remind us the Lord is near. It's not how it feels when the devil is standing there making you fear. Remember, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about, which includes this thing that you're thinking about that's causing all the anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You have a fear, the Lord is near. Take it to the Lord in prayer. There's a difference between thinking and praying. Praying is doing something about it. Thinking is obsessing about it. Obsessing about it will make it worse. Praying about it will usually make it... Might not change the situation because in the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Meaning, maybe the situation isn't going to change right now, but He can change our attitude and outlook and perspective in the midst of the situation. I'll tell you, you have a choice. Praying or thinking. One will be obsessional and destructive. One will be biblical and useful. But you get to pick which one you do. Now, I don't know how you might be emotionally out of sync with God's will today. I just know that our emotions are fleeting, but God's commands withstand. Amen? I know that when we invited Jesus to be our Lord, that that included to be Lord over our emotions. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength. And emotionally, that will often necessitate a supernatural recalibration of our natural inclination and normal fallen reaction to a given situation. Amen? This is hard. That's okay. He says, I can do all things through Christ. 
He doesn't say you can do this on your own. He doesn't invite you to... If you're going to bear fruit, you have to be abiding in the vine. This is the power of Christ in you. This is how you can be there with cancer. You can be there uh, without the spouse that you had yesterday. And people go, how, how is it you still have joy? You may have pain, but you have joy. And the answer is, is Jesus. But Satan wants you to get you to focus on what you don't have, or what you wish you had, or what you had yesterday, instead of what you have eternally in Christ. And, and it can be very destructive to the saints. If you're trying to rejoice despite pain in your voice, the question rapidly arises, well, how do I rejoice when I feel like mourning? I mean, you know, preachers tell, rejoice in the Lord always. And you go, well, thanks, that's super helpful. Why don't you just tell me to fly to Rome when I'm bored? I don't, can't seem to make that work. So, so how do we do that? How do we rejoice when we feel like mourning? Well, in Nehemiah's day... God laid out a bit of a plan. It's found in verse 10. And it says this. Go your way. Eat the fat. I like that. Uh, drink the sweet wine. Two or three of you are offended. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. I didn't write the Bible. I'm just going to preach it, okay? Yell at the author. For the stressed, for the depressed, for the hard-pressed, this is still excellent advice. And the first piece of advice God would say when you feel like mourning but you should be rejoicing is go your way. Don't let the situation and the subsequent depression keep you in bed with the covers pulled over your head. Instead, you ought to go your way. Go to work. Go to church. Go to the park. Go for a run. Satan wants you to isolate so that you fixate so your depression never abates. That's what he wants. But God wants you to migrate so the depression vacates. Go your way. First thing God says. God wants you to go your way. Did you know that simply getting out of bed on days we're depressed can make those dark clouds start to leave our heads? Ask God to establish the work of your hands. There are days where I just pray in my office. I'm worn out, I'm beat up, I'm tired, and I pray, God, establish the work of my hands. I don't know where to start, and I'm too tired to start, so I cheat. God, establish the work of my hands. That comes from the oldest psalm in the Bible, the psalm of Moses. Establish. There are days that we're so overwhelmed. The mountain is so big. How will we ever climb it? or chip it away. And we just have to pray, God, establish the work of our hands. We go the way God has for us. We go your way. Surprisingly, to some of you who have aesthetic tendencies, you're, you're my monks in hiding at Calvary, Scripture says this, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine. It doesn't say wear a rough camel's hair and beat yourself until you're spiritually super... It says, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine. I want you to remember the setting of these people in Nehemiah 8. There had been precious little joy during the strenuous labor of building the wall. 52 days of incredibly hard work, get, getting done what God's people couldn't achieve in 95 years they did in 52 days. And do you remember what was happening around them? There was a severe famine that was about them. And so friends... There had not been a lot of time to rejoice. There had not been a lot of resources allocated to rejoicing. And so I want you to see that here is our good God inviting His beloved sheep to be refreshed by lying down in green pastures 
and drinking at the still waters. God was saying, eat and drink the good stuff. Sometimes we need to break our diets to lift our spirits. And there are times to eat the fat in Scripture. And that was the best in choice cuts of meat. There, there were times to drink the sweet wine, which was wine mixed with honey. They were basically to have a holy party, if you look at it. Uh, and then they were to send their portions to anyone who has nothing. Because not everybody has this available to them. I find it strange. It's a strange thing in God's kingdom that he who seeks his life for Jesus, or see, he who loses his life for Jesus is the one who finds it. If you try to keep your life, you'll lose it. If you try to give it away, you'll find it. That's, that's how the kingdom works, right? And so, here were these people, and they were given to mourning, and God says, look, go your way, eat the fat, drink the wine, and share with other people who also have need. In fact, their need is greater than your need. Go find them and cheer them up. Did you know that coffee with a shut-in can shut out your own loneliness? Love is like manna. Remember manna in Scripture? We can't hoard manna. You, you can't keep manna extra for later. It, it, when we're depressed, we reflexively hoard our love. I might not have much left. I better keep this right here. But it's when we share love that love expands. Two people love each other, so they get married, and suddenly another human's added, and more love is added. Not less. There's new love for the baby that wasn't there when you follow. That's God's math. Now, here's the thing. You can't really love a stranger. Love requires us being closer. And so too it is true that you can't defeat depression through isolation. You can't. Equally, you can't dispel loneliness through remaining alone. You can't dispel loneliness through remaining alone. Which is why the Bible says this. And I want you to write it down. It's Proverbs 18.24. Proverbs 18.24. A man who has friends must himself be friendly. I've met people who go, oh, woe is me, I have no friends. Are you friendly? Or are you a giant cactus with a radioactive moat and a sign going, stay away? Because you're probably going to be lonely forever. Because the Bible says, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. It's important to understand that while there are practical steps to realigning our emotions, friends, it wasn't the holy party that solved this primarily. It wasn't the fat nor the wine that ultimately made things fine. They were steps towards moving from mourning to joy. But if you look at verse 10 again, it's not what God says was the main factor. It says, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Yeah, there were practical steps. Don't be isolated. Go your way. Eat the fat. Drink the wine. Do those things. Go and help the needy. Uh, get around some other people. But at the end of the day, the ultimate source of joy was the Lord. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord lifted up those saints whose situation minutes before evoked depression in the congregation. Look at verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The Word of God gave them comfort. When we are depressed, Satan tries his best to keep us from God's house, doesn't he? Because he knows God's people, 
living and loving as God intends is a powerful tonic against Satan's torments. Amen? If the church is being the church, and if they know us by our love, and we're worshiping it in spirit and truth, and the Word of God is being given with power, and you come, you leave with a fuller tank than when you walk through the door. And, and I have a friend, Uncle Wayne, and Uncle Wade says, you know, it's the Sundays that Satan works the hardest for me not to be here that I always get the most out of it. I don't know if that's true for you, but I've heard lots of saints say that in various settings. Which is why the Word of God says in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. We're to, we're to stir one another. We're to be catalysts for biblical Christianity. Let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. And all the more as you say, see the day near. If you're going to be effective and productive, you need to be around iron that sharpens iron. And when the people of God get together, we want to try to say what's useful for building one another up according to their needs. And if we do that, you leave built up instead of beat up. And you don't know who walks through the door and what it took for them to get here, do you? Now, there are two more takeaways from our text today. For those of you in some kind of leadership in God's house, our map is going to read a little differently on you are here, but you need to be here than the first group. This brings us to point two. If emotionally our emotions are fleeting, but God's word withstands, God's command withstands, number two, devotionally, a greater response is required of those with greater responsibilities. Devotionally, a greater response is required of those with greater responsibilities. In Nehemiah 8, Yesterday, everybody old enough to understand Scripture was on hand for six hours of preaching and teaching. But the next day, all those people went home. They went back and did their business and they got on with life. But that wasn't true for all the people. Look at verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people and the priests and the Levites, well, they came back together with Ezra the scribe in order to study the Word of God. Jesus told us, to whom much is given, much is required. The heads of the Father's houses, people of influence amongst the Israelites, the Levites, the ministers, the priests, the special ministers, well, they needed more Scripture saturation because the ones called of God to lead others need to know the Word of God or they will mislead others. Amen? Uncle Ben from Spider-Man was not wrong. He hit upon a biblical principle. With great authority comes great responsibility. Some of us need to go deeper in the Word because God has given us authority and responsibility over others. If God has called you to eldership, you need to hold fast to sound doctrine and be able to contend with those who would refute it. If God has chosen you to be a ministry leader or a Bible teacher at Calvary, it doesn't matter if it's to the kids on Monday night at Pioneer Girls and, and, and the boys at Battalion. It doesn't matter if it's on Wednesday night to the youth. It doesn't matter if it's on Sunday morning in children's church. It doesn't matter if it's on Tuesday night and it's your small group. If God has put you in a ministry or teaching capacity, the Bible says you need to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, but who does what? Who rightly handles the word of truth. 
If God has given you responsibility, then pursue the ability to handle that faithfully. Friend, some of you go, well, I'm not in ministry leadership. I don't teach anything. That's okay. If you're the only Christian at your workplace, I know for a lot of you that's true. You might have one or two, but they're kind of secret agent Christians. They kind of come up to you and go, I'm a Christian too. Then they're gone. So you're kind of the only public Christian at your workplace. Friends, you're going to need to spend extra time on your knees asking the Lord to transform you into a vibrant and effective ambassador for Jesus Christ because God has providentially placed you and only you in that company, community, PTA meeting for Jesus Christ as His missionary. Do you pray because God has given you a place of influence? Or do you say, woe is me, I am undone, I am the only one. One is coming from the enemy, one is coming from the king. Which voice are you listening to in your world this week? Now, some of you are parents, some of you are grandparents, and you have the ears of precious little people. They listen to you in a way they don't listen to others. In Deuteronomy 11, God commands us, you shall lay upon these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall teach them to your children. Talking of them when you're sitting in your house, and when you're walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Meaning, you're going to have opportunities to teach that aren't just in Sunday school. Sometimes our children and grandchildren are most receptive when you were not at all prepared. <laughs> and they want to talk about the things of God. And so moms and dads, grannies and granddads, friends, teaching moments are going to happen. Are you ready for when they happen? And do you make the most of every opportunity? We don't get to plan when our children and grandchildren's window of opportunity opens. But I want to encourage you, when the window's open, go through it. The cookies aren't as important. Getting to the thingamajig isn't as important. The laundry isn't as important. When someone is spiritually open, don't let your schedule close it. Let Jesus run the agenda. Friends, devotionally, a greater response is required of those with greater responsibilities. And that brings us to our final point today. Point number three, sincerely. Sincerely, we must not let our worship become a ritual, but let it crackle with biblical vitality. Sincerely, in your heart, do not let worship become a ritual, but let it crackle with biblical vitality. Verse 17 says something jarring. And I want to give you the context starting at verse 14. So if you'll look at Nehemiah 8 starting at verse 14 and pay particular attention when we get to verse 17. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it all over their towns and in Jerusalem Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, to make little temporary shelters as it's written in the Scriptures. So the people were obedient. Verse 16, the people went out and they brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly, that is the whole nation, all those who'd returned from captivity, everybody did it this time. 
Well, they made booths, and then they lived in those booths, because some years they may have just made the booths and nobody slept in them. For from the days of Yeshua, son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. I want you to pay attention to verse 17, because you're going to go, wait a minute, I think the Bible tells us they've done so. What's going on here? The Bible here says they haven't done it right since the days of Joshua. And there was very great rejoicing, and day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Now, at first glance, when you read this text, you think, well, the people have just not kept the festival of the booze at all since the days of Joshua. But that is not biblically true. We must always compare Scripture with Scripture. We must always teach the full counsel of God. Amen? So, we know the Feast of Booths was kept in some way in Ezra's day. I want you to turn for a second back to the book of Ezra, to Ezra chapter 3 and verse 4. It's to the left and it's on page 394. Ezra 3, 4. Chronologically, Ezra happens before Nehemiah. Ezra chronicles the first return under Zerubbabel, the second return under Ezra, and then Nehemiah is the third return of God's people from captivity. And back in Ezra 3, 4, which happened before Nehemiah, they kept the feast of booths, as it is written. So we know God's people kept the ritual, but according to God's word in Nehemiah 8.17, something was missing in that ritual. Now what was missing? Scripture doesn't tell us precisely. Perhaps it's the first time since the days of Joshua that all the people participated instead of just the most faithful. That could be. The text kind of says all the people, so maybe before only some of the people bothered to celebrate God's festival. Or perhaps this is the first time since the days of Joshua that they all bothered to sleep in the booths. Maybe everyone built a booth, they went home to their comfy beds. But this year they actually slept out in the cold, in, in the temporary shelter. Uh, perhaps this is the first time since the days of Joshua that happened. Perhaps this is the first time since the days of Joshua that they did this with rejoicing. Because the text says they rejoiced. And maybe before, like, we're at the festival of booze, we've got to sit outside, I hate this. <sighs> perhaps this is the first time since the days of Joshua they celebrated with the real ideal of the ceremony, which was to remember their wilderness wandering from sin and God providing a land. Maybe they just said, well, it's the fall and we're having our harvest festival. That's what this was, right? And maybe they were thinking about it more in context of the harvest and less in terms of God's providence. They could get the ritual right and miss the worship. What we don't know is exactly what was different. We don't know. But we do know, according to Scripture, God saw it as different. God said there were only two times you really celebrated this in all the years of your history. The first time and this time. And all the other times, you just went through the motions. When God's people got into God's Word, God led them to change their cold religious ritual into something dynamic and spiritual. Uh, they thought they were here following God by going through the motions. But God's Word said, you know what? You're way over there. He wanted their hearts. He didn't just want their hands to go through the routine again and again. They had commemorated the Festival of Booths many times, but God knew this was the only time they really celebrated it, except for the first time as well. The first time and this time, the only two times God said this was real. Got a question for you. How many times have you read aloud the words on that screen? Now, how many times have you really worshipped the king? Or all you did was just sing? See how it's easy? 
How many times have we taken communion? Many times. But how many times did we do so really in reverence, in remembrance of Jesus? And how many times was it, don't spill on the carpet, make sure your toddler doesn't either? We can miss the point while we do the ritual. How many times have we put an envelope in an offering plate in our lifetime as a Christian? But how many times have we made a real sacrifice when we put that in? We've given it with real joy, with the prospect of extending the kingdom of God in our day to His glory instead of, you know, just keeping the lights on here at Calvary. Do you see the difference between ritual and worship? And do you see how it's really easy to become ritualistic instead of worship? It's easy, friends. So to those ends, we're going to pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let's pray today. Lord Jesus, Romans 10.9 is clear. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Many of us have done that. Most of us have probably done that. We have asked you to be our Lord. And then you have asked us to love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Lord, help us to give you lordship over our emotions this week this month, this holiday season, this coming year, this next decade, and for the rest of this short breath of life you have given us. Give us spirit-led reactions to the situations we will encounter. Lord, may our spouses, may our neighbors, and may our co-workers see Christ in us when they normally would expect us to blow up, spout off, or slink away. May they see Christ respond with grace and truth. May we respond supernaturally because we belong to the King and we're yielding our emotions as a part of our devotion. May we be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. May we share with God's people who are in need. May we practice hospitality because he who would have friends must himself be friendly. Lord, may we study your scriptures and not just lounge around. May our worship crackle with vitality and not degenerate into formality. May we give cheerfully, obediently, sacrificially, and not merely methodically, mechanically, and perfunctorily. May we love others because you first loved us. And may the love of Christ so fill our cup that it unavoidably overflows to all that we encounter. You tell us in Scripture that what's in the cup is what comes out of the cup, and somebody's going to bump us today, whether it's on the parkway or it's Monday at the office. Somebody's going to know how to push our buttons. They're going to shake our cup, and what's going to come out? Well, what comes out of the cup is what's in our heart. So help Jesus to come out because we put Him as Lord of our hearts because we'll not be a very good ambassador if we come out of that cup when shaken. May we be a perfume in the room, compellingly pointing our neighbors to the Savior. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.